It's September 14th, 2016, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's science and technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. First off, virtual reality is the theme of the local tech calendar. Chris Lee is here to tell us about a Unity VR workshop. In fact, more than one event coming up at the University of Hawaii iLab. Then we will have uh, Leslie Dance to tell us about the upcoming VR session at the Hawaii Tourism Conference. And, of course, finally, after the break, we'll talk to Tristan Bassingthwaite and Carmel Johnson, if we can get her on the phone, about uh, both our scientists and part of the latest mission in high seas, the habitat on Mauna Loa, to explore long-duration missions on Mars. What was it like to spend a year cooped up in a simulated Mars habitat? The questions are open to everyone, and we welcome yours by calling our station or by giving us a tweet after the break. And, of course, we want to first welcome Chris Lee, and he's from the Academy of Creative Media, and he's here to tell us about the upcoming Unity VR workshop. Welcome to the show, Chris. Very nice to be back. Now, Unity VR, uh, you guys had this uh, workshop last year, right? I mean, two years ago, but it well, wasn't in VR. Uh-huh. You know, VR really kind of exploded this year with the, you know, some of the software hardware finally came out, like the HTC V5 mm-hmm. and the Oculus finally shipped. Um, it's not VR, but obviously AR in the Pokemon game obviously made people much more aware of what was going on. And so this semester, actually, for the first time at UH Manoa, Jason Lee is teaching a full VR class. Mm. Now, uh, Unity is a platform. It's 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 basically underlies some of the most popular games out there. It's well, actually, Pokemon was built in Unity. Oh. Um, so, but yeah, if you go onto Unity, uh, it's essentially a place where you can actually buy assets, you can build assets, you can sell assets, you can access assets. And what's great is their what's called he's called the global evangelist Carl Calloward is coming back again. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're doing a session. Uh, this one's sold out tomorrow at uh, Manoa in Jason's class. Friday we he will be out at West Oahu from twelve thirty to five, uh, and that is open and that is available if people from the public want to come. Um, mm. We usually accept students from say middle school on up, uh, lots of tech companies. But uh, he's going to be there for four hours. That's more going to be more like a multiplayer lawn game situation. Then Saturday, and we still have a few spots left, and in the iLab, starting at uh, 9 or 10 in the morning, mm-hmm. uh, is going to be the big one, which has at least probably – we already have 100 people signed up for it, and we're going to maybe have 120. Can you give us a sense of what the workshop might uh, cover? Yeah, it's going to basically – give you the chance during that daytime uh, to actually make an actual 3D and VR game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you do have to bring a laptop with sufficient power and you have to download certain software and that's all on our website at uh, acmsystem.hawaii.edu slash events. Mm. Uh, and that's also where you can find the sign-up link to to go to it. But that'll sort of list out the requirements for the day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, who are the attendees? I mean, what kind of, uh, are you looking for coders? Are you looking for game developers? I mean, what are the profiles of the attendees? You know, we, you know, last time I think we had about 150 we actually did at Iolani School. And uh, we had everything, from, as I said, from eighth grade kids all the way to mm-hmm. a lot of the local tech companies came. We had faculty come. We had, you know, multiple students from various of our campuses. So it's really open to the casual gamer, the hardcore gamer, the curious. Um, but, you know, everybody today, I mean, Unity is, is, it makes it very simple 
to build a game. And that's why it has so much of the market share. Mm-hmm. Now, tell me a little bit more about this evangelist. I mean, again, <laughs> Unity is one of the biggest platforms, some of the biggest video games out there. It is a global phenomenon. And this person's job, it is, is it's his job to go out and spread the word and yeah. get communities riled up about the opportunities available in, in VR. Yeah, this is the big roadshow. And they, you know, he goes literally around the world doing this. And uh, we're very fortunate he's come back to Hawaii for a second time and we can sponsor it again. But, yeah, his title is America's Director and Global Leader Evangelism at Unity Technologies. Um, And it says that Carl finds his passion to share information with others flying around the world to meet developers. So he's uh, he's been a big gamer himself, and uh, and he's he's a really great public speaker as well. It's just a lot of fun. And then, uh, so he's been doing this sort of on a on a road show. I mean, he's going from city to city to city. It's literally called the road show, yeah. And um, we do have a, a second part on Saturday, which is actual certification in Unity. That one, there is a charge for it. It's $250. Um, but normally you would have to go up to the mainland to get the certification. So it's a pretty good deal. If, and that's really more for, you know, hardcore gamers, I think. And so I guess the certification level, uh, who would be out there looking for that certification? I mean, are there companies hiring just like, you know, they hire a Cisco uh, CCNA or something like that? I mean, they're looking for this level of certification. Yeah, you know, um, so many people are looking for people to create games, uh, particularly on mobile platforms. And actually, you know, that uh, the academy at the university, all of what we do, it tends to be mobile gaming. You know, we don't really have, like, electronic arts here. We're not making Call of Duty here. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we, we do these classes um, where the kids actually build games as in one semester. And uh, we did it with a, a joint class with something called the Cyber Canoe, which is something also Jason has, uh, has done for us. And we now have eight of them. Uh, through different campuses, and Kamehameha just opened one of the, as one as well. Mm-hmm. But when you're talking about these particular events, I mean, I, I, the Iolani class, I even heard about that one, I believe, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of great outreach for younger students, but it sounds like this is pretty wide open. I mean, if you're if you're looking to, if you're a programmer just looking for a fresh start after a whole career in programming and development, that this might be something of interest. I, I think it's a great opportunity for anybody who wants to tell a story through game. And, uh, you know, I really encourage people to show up, and I, you know, I would take elementary kids if they want to come with their parents. That's fine with me. So now you said that you uh, are doing the class not only here but also in West Oahu. And mm-hmm. so is there a whole curriculum sort of being developed out of the West, West Oahu uh, yeah. campus? On the gaming side, actually, yes. We're doing video games at West Oahu. We're just introducing it now at Windward Community College as well. And, of course, we have them at the Manoa campus. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I think KCC is about to add gaming to their to their curriculum as well. I think gaming is a really great thing because, you know, do you remember Flappy Bird? Mm-hmm. So this Vietnamese kid built mm-hmm. this game, and he was making $50,000 a day with this 8-bit-looking thing. And, you know, that's the reality. And, you know, so much of uh, this sort of uh, gig economy, uh-huh. we really encourage the kids to sort of hone their entrepreneurial skills uh, build their IP, build their brand, and then use these platforms like the Apple Store or the iTunes Store uh, or YouTube to get their product out there. Well, you know, I, I noticed that um, you said KCC, you said uh, West Oahu, even mm-hmm. even Windward is kind of like nurturing this whole gaming yep. uh, community in, in the student population. Yes. What do you see as being kind of their opportunity? Obviously, I mean, they could be entrepreneurial. They can, you know, start up their own little startup. But are there other companies in Hawaii kind of forming to, to look at this? You know, there there was a company that was more uh, animation, uh, Blue Water Multimedia. And that was one of our graduates helped start that company. And they, mm-hmm. you know, kind of do the walking, talking, you know, um, 
animals and creatures that you see in commercials here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think we've had enough of we're starting to build a game culture and we need to build more of one. Now, uh, I have to ask this on behalf of my middle son who ba- mm. builds entire universes in Minecraft. Minecraft, you know? yes. He, cruise ships sure. and Aloha Tower and anything he sees, he's he's working on Aloha Stadium right now. Now, <laughs> is that a gateway for this sort of activity or? Sure, absolutely. You know, I mean, I think Minecraft is, is fan- as a fantastic thing because so many kids are take to it so easily. Now, are we, um, but, you know, as far as them getting positions here in Hawaii, I mean, are, do you see kind of the tech community embracing the gaming, game development uh, uh, environment? Well, the reason, again, that we focus on mobile gaming, you know, for example, when Jason did this class, and we jo- did it jointly with West Oahu and the Manoa students, and I think there were six teams that built six different games, all in one semester. I actually was a judge at the end of the semester. The reality is it's something that they can actually do in a relatively short time. Mm-hmm. Um, what we encourage and what we, you know, I think really foster is we bring together the ACM students who have the character design and the storytelling skills and mm-hmm. we bring with the coders in ICS and engineering and we bring them together. We also last year did um, a gaming class that was more about location-based um, museum things and it was all uh, – the theme was the uh, global – climate change mm-hmm. and bleaching of the corals. And so the kids did all these games that were, some of them were in 3D, some of them were actually used uh, the Connect system, so you actually moved around and stuff like that. And that class was ACM, it was engineering, it was art and helo, it was marine oh. sciences. So it's really very cross-disciplinary, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, that's what we really like to foster, because you can't, you can't have just have the coders, and you can't just, just have the, right. the storytellers. You've got to bring them together. Yeah. So remind us once again of these events. You said tomorrow's event sold out, but there's still opportunity, for example. Tomorrow for- is yeah. sold out. Uh, Friday is not sold out yet. That's at West Oahu. It's in E139, mm-hmm. and it's from 1230 to 5. And then Saturday, we have just a few seats left. And oh, by the way, they even feed everybody. We've got oh. 120 bentos coming in. Oh, developers I think love, are, yeah, I, love I think to be seats fed. Are all gone. Exactly, <laughs> I know. Uh, and that will be in the iLab. And you can find all these events at slash events. Sounds good. Fantastic. We'll definitely put that up on our show notes. Thanks, Chris, for joining us. Thank you. Always glad to be here. Great. Now, uh, we also want to welcome Leslie Dance, and she's the Vice President of Marketing and Product Development over at the Hawaii Tourism Authority, and she's here to tell us about the upcoming Hawaii Tourism Conference. Welcome to the show, Leslie. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Now, you know, this uh, conference has been going on for a bunch of years, and usually it's kind of like a, a um, one-day event, and it's kind of an intense, uh, you know, one day, but this is taking it to a whole nother level. I mean, this is like a whole week event. Well, it's three and a half days on Oahu, okay. but if you look into the FAMS beforehand and afterwards, it's much longer than that. But what we're doing this year is we're taking it, like you said, to a whole nother level. And we want to not only inform like we've always done, but we want to really expand it to have more of a global focus. I mean, think about it where Hawaii sits as a as a place um, is in the middle of the, you know, the Pacific. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's lots of countries, Asia and everything. So we want to bring a lot of people to town. In fact, we're doubling our attendance with 50% of them not being from Hawaii. And, you know, global travel and interests of consumers are evolving. And Hawaii is adapting to how we want to reach them, especially millennials. And that's where technology is very important. Um, um, but we'll combine the greatness of our islands, our host culture, our Hawaiian culture, our natural 
um, beauty with these new strategies and insights on how to keep Hawaii foremost in the minds of travelers. Now, we recently talked about uh, a specific technology panel coming together for this conference. BERT is helping to pull that together, but uh, there's also specific niches within that, and almost perfect timing with having Chris here. There's also a VR component to this conference. Oh, it's a very big component and something we've been working towards since February, where we were conceiving of the ideas of virtual reality all geared towards launching it here at the conference. And we've, uh, you know, we worked with a lot of local people to come up with the ideas. We're going to have five different um, virtual reality experiences. Um, You're going to start, and I love to describe this because this was my dream. A lot of people dream about flying, right? I dream about flying all the time. So you, you figure you're up, up like at a Google Earth view, right? And you're, you come down slowly, and then you're on a hang glider. And then you're gliding over the Hawaiian Islands, and you start feeling the breeze, and they hear the birds, and then the air and everything. And then you choose your island, and you land on the island. And then you're greeted by a host from that island. And they share something very uh, special and immersive um, and fun to do about that island. So it, it educates, um, but it also is a very interactive um enjoyable way to experience the Hawaiian Islands. So these are new virtual reality experiences. You said five companies put them together? No, well, no, three companies three put them companies. together, but there's five experiences. And is it broken down specifically by island? Cause Each island. There's the generic one where you're floating and flying, and then you land, and then there's one. There's four of them. I example. like that because, and I've also seen the uh, the authority work more on uh, emphasizing the different personalities of the different islands. Absolutely. That's one of our main missions. And everything that we do. Now, this is very exciting. And you're gonna, are you going to debut this at the conference? We're going to have a panel. We're, we'll have them. We have our Vive stations. And our, we're going to give everybody a Google Cardboard. Oh, yeah. That great. attends. So not only do we have food, we have Google Cardboard. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> okay. Take that, Chris. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we'll have bring – they'll be down. And we have a tech hub that Bert's helping us with in the middle of our village market um, and our village square where there's going to be the island chapters are going to be there talking about their islands and their personal. And then our tech hub will have not only the virtual reality, we'll have our new GoHawaii.com website will be fo- will be shared. Um, the Go Hawaii app that you've talked about here mm-hmm. before, 2.0, mm-hmm. will be debuted as well. And then we have some other fun things that will be now, a Now, Leslie, I want to hear what you think about the, let's say the, um, I don't know, it's not a criticism, but, you know, if you're so good at creating a VR environment that depicts what it might be like to have an experience in Hawaii, wouldn't that take away from the person actually coming here? Does anything ever really take away from the real thing? Well, I don't think so. (laughs) But anyway, I mean, we have a lot of markets too, remember, that haven't been here. A lot of people that haven't been here. So it's a really good tool for our travel trade, for instance, to use in China or Mm -hmm. Hong Kong or Southeast Asia, where people don't have the same knowledge that people in the United Mm -hmm. States do of Hawaii. So I think it'll be something fun for people, millennials, to to explore the islands, you know, and to encourage them to come because there's more millennials than there are baby boomers now. And and but also it'll be a tool that we can educate people about Hawaii and make them want to come here Mm -hmm. and visit. And And you say everyone gets a Google Cardboard which is fantastic. So I would imagine that after the debut, obviously the app, the Go Hawaii app, can, will be available to everyone. But these 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 yes. experiences will be available to people who didn't attend the conference at some point to also take these journeys. Yeah, absolutely. They'll, they'll be they'll be living in perpetuity, and I'm sure we'll upgrade them. And we'll talk to Chris about you know evolving and doing new things possibly in the future. So we'll we'll keep it going. So, so there obviously is going to be a version for Android and the iPhone yes. to actually play, so that you can use the cardboard and, and kind yes. of view this. Yes, oh, that's not exciting. Now, the, something that you might not know about is that there is a session during the conference 
called the reverse pitch. And we are having some of the tourism execs come in front of some of the tech community and actually do a reverse pitch on what some of the challenges they might face and see if the tech company can tech companies or tech community can come in and perhaps come up brainstorm some ideas on Oh so that's why it. you've been hiding and so quiet <laughs> so I would I would get some surprises myself Yeah that No is, that'll that be is, great yeah, that'll that be great that tech hub's going to be awesome Yeah it'll be well, fun and and I love the idea of 3D and immersive and mm-hmm. VR there was a company that we profiled years ago 3D Hoy I think they're still around doing immersive uh uh, imagery of various locations around Hawaii. Um, I'll, when you say you're putting these together and you're looking to create authentic versions, um, is it that you uh, consulted cultural practitioners oh. or were the developers um, all already immersed in the visitor well, industry? Our creative team here has been a partner of ours for, for of Hawaiian Islands for many, many years. And he's a young guy that totally gets virtual reality and what it can do, but he, but he also understands the islands. We also have a director of Hawaiian Cultural Affairs, Kalani, and he has been instrumental in helping us shape the experiences and you know the people involved, the music, everything that we're doing. Mm-hmm. So it's not going to be Gidget Goes to Hawaii. Probably. No, it's not going to be Gidget Goes to Hawaii. Not at all. Nothing we do is like that. Now, are you, um, you said that maybe half of the people will be from the mainland. I mean, how are you getting the word out to the sort of tourism and hospitality community uh, off-island? Yeah, you said FAMS. These are... Well, that, we bring familiarization trips. That's an industry acronym. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. You forget. Um, we have a global marketing team in all the major market areas that we want to uh, attract visitors to Hawaii from. So they they have been tasked with drumming up the attendance from all the different places. So we have, you know, like a, a 50 new people coming from China. We have over 150 coming from Japan. So people that haven't ever come to our conference are coming to experience everything that we have to offer. And I imagine you're including, we are talking about millennials and the next generation, you're getting bloggers, you're getting oh. YouTube stars. Oh, well, that's another thing that, Leslie, I, I, you know, we are still working on. We, yes. we have a whole social media, social media studio. And, <laughs> and influencers, gonna... and um, we're, we're going to hopefully see blogging and tweeting and all kinds of things coming out of that they conference. They should definitely accept this invitation rather than that of North Korea. That's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Good point. But I want to encourage people. I mean, there's going to be – we have worked so hard on this conference for almost a year now. And I, we have – there's going to be so much great content for everyone, um, the tech in particular. But, you know, we really want to encourage people to come and, and experience everything that we've put together for them to enjoy and to learn from. And you can do that by going to the HawaiiTourismConference.com. Very good. Easy to remember. And so that's where they can sign up and check it out. And And register. And I mean, we'll take people walking up the same day of, but we would really like people to register so we know that we have enough food. HawaiiTourismConference.com. Very good. Thanks, Leslie, for joining us. Thank you for having me, Bert And and Ryan. And we'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Tristan Bassingthwaite. And, of course, uh, we're hoping that Carmel Johnston will also give us a call here. We'll talk about high seas. That's right. What was it like to spend a year in a simulated Mars habitat? What can we learn from these long-duration missions on Earth for long-duration missions in space? Of course, we'd love your questions as part of the conversation. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or reach us toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're live here in the studio. You can tweet us your questions as well. Two at Bite Marks or at Hawaii. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Hi, my name is Terry Savage, and I proudly support Hawaii Public Radio. Listening to HPR is like looking at good art. It offers variety, depth, perspective, and nuance you won't find anywhere else on radio. Not everything I hear is necessarily my cup of tea, and that's okay. HPR's programs stretch my thinking and keep me connected to an ever-changing, complex world. 
Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Amy B. Scher, author of How to Heal Yourself When No One Else Can. And next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how to heal yourself using simple self-healing tools. Sunday morning at 11. This week on Invisibilia... We look at personality. We are very quiet. Outspoken. Introverted. Conscientious. And this idea we have. Outgoing. Hardworking. Sensitive. That it explains what happens in our lives. Loving. Open. Tough. Agreeable. Is that really the right way to think? That iconic story is upside down wrong. That's on the next Invisibilia from NPR. This evening at 7, following Counterspin. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And, of course, joining us today are Tristan Bassingthwaite. And, of course, uh, we're hoping that maybe uh, Carmel Johnston will give us a call. She's actually landing in Seattle right now, so we're hoping for uh, a call in from her. Of course, uh, Tristan serves as the crew architect and is currently a doctor of architecture over at the... UH Manoa campus, and he's also completing his master's degree, uh, or he, he has completed his master's degree from uh, Tongji University in Shanghai. We've got to ask you about that, where he studied abroad for a year looking at human habitation in extreme environments. Certainly sounds fitting. So what were the things that motivated these these brave and curious individuals to get involved with this Mars simulation and what was it like to be cooped up uh, just like that on Mauna Loa. Of course, we'd love your questions and comments. You can give us a call at 941-3689. That's on Oahu or from the neighbor islands. You can reach us toll free at 877-941-3689. Welcome to Bite Marks Cafe. It's good to be here. Well, Tristan, uh, you know, I know you've been doing the circuit of Talking to all the media about your life, 12 months on a uh, uh, Mars habitat uh, on uh, Mauna Loa. First off, I want to ask you, what possessed you to want to be a part of this 12-month mission? Uh, it actually happened completely by accident. Uh, I was in uh, China doing my master's okay, degree okay. and uh, just came across um, like Mars Desert Research Station and eventually high seas, just looking for analogs mm-hmm. for uh, a Martian environment to mm-hmm. study. Um, hopefully write some of the crew members if I was able to. Just another sort of point of research and uh, sort of made friends with the people that were doing High Seas 3 at the time. And they just dropped one day that uh, applications are open for a High Seas 4. Thought I would uh, give it a shot, see what I could learn about um, even just the selection procedures. Mm-hmm. And somehow just got in and uh, went from not knowing about it at all to being locked up there in about four months. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty impressive. Now, we've been following the High Seas mission from before the first mission when they were just putting it together. I think it was three or four months. That first mission was like, how do we prepare foods that astronauts would like to eat? And how do you balance prepared foods versus, you know, prepackaged meals and mixing the crew experience that way all the way to this point for a full year cooped up like that? Um, And I think it's fantastic that, Uh, You know, before we heard about people who've always wanted to be astronauts, they've trained to be astronauts, they're ready to be astronauts, so they were looking for a program like this their whole lives, and here we find you, Tristan, who was like, that sounds kind of interesting, okay, I'll throw my name in the hat, and you ended up in there. That, I think, is also a testament to the diversity of backgrounds and personalities that they bring. Can you share what mix you had living in this 
space on Mauna Loa? Yeah, they're trying to go for sort of the uh, most complex social mix that they can get up there because you've only got the six people. And if everybody's sort of from the same background, same culture, it's going to get very boring very quickly. So um, I was uh, sort of the goofy architect guy, the artist, like to tell jokes. Uh, we had um, a German, a Frenchman. Um, Carmel's also from Montana like me. And then uh, the other two were from, I believe, uh, the Midwest. Um, so we had sort of a smattering of uh, cultures, and then we're all from uh, various scientific backgrounds, except me. I'm actually just from a design background. Now, you know, I, I want to, Tristan, I want to ask you about uh, your studies in Shanghai and why you wanted to study extreme environments and of all places in Shanghai. But before we do that, we want to welcome Carmel Johnston, who... Ah is the uh, crew commander of this latest high seas mission. And she's a graduate uh, student over at the uh, Montana State University over in Bozeman. And, of course, she has a passion for natural resources. Carmel, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm glad we could reach you just breathless off the plane, I would imagine. (laughs) Yeah. We just walked right off the plane right now. Well, very good. I'm glad you're here. And, of course, uh, uh, Tristan is here, and we're just sort of getting started about talking about the uh, 12-month mission. And we asked uh, Tristan, you know, what possessed him to want to do this uh, 12-month isolation? And I want to ask you the same question. What, you know, what is it that uh, got you all motivated to want to be a part of this, uh, this lengthy, I think this is the longest one, right? Yeah, it's the longest one. It's the only NASA-funded BHP research mission that's gone for an entire year. And... Um, I think my main motivation for it was to do something that would contribute to the science because I don't think I have a very good chance of becoming an astronaut, but I have a pretty good chance of being able to contribute to the science that will help make their lives easier and better in the future. And so I partially wanted to see if I had what it takes to begin with, but then also knowing that I was contributing to the research the entire year made it worth it for me. Now, how did it come to you being the crew commander? Was there a was there a long and lengthy and sometimes punishing campaign period? Were there primaries? I mean, how do those assignments work? <laughs> primaries. Um, yeah. <laughs> it was not a campaigning process for it. Um, the crew voted on it, and then the research team also selected based on their um, knowledge of everybody's backgrounds and stuff. And so they, it was a process that the research team decided on, and I, I didn't have the choice initially about it. Huh. Now, now, uh, Carmel, you, uh, I was looking at your bio, and it said that you, you know, really like the outdoors. You do a lot of hiking, camping, and, and of course, you know, li- growing up in Montana, I mean, that's really great outdoors, uh, outdoors country. But, you know, living in a secluded <laughs> habitat, of course, you know, on the top of Mauna Loa, that's not exactly, you know, like uh, going camping. I mean, it is sort of camping, but you're just sequestered in- inside that, uh, that habitat. Yeah, it's definitely not the ideal outdoor situation for the entire year, but um, it's another isolated and confined environment where it could be similar to Antarctica or the Arctic, or Mm -hmm. I mean, essentially the idea is it is similar to going to Mars, which is the ultimate adventure. And so it's it's not getting to go outside and have the the wind and the sun on your face every day, but you do get to go outside and explore lava tubes and and have an adventure in your own way. And so it's 
fulfilled the needs that I had for the entire year of, of adventuring. Oh, that's excellent. And I think in that, that way you have something in common with Tristan. So as Bert previewed, you are interested in extreme environments. Now, I might think of perhaps air quality, but what are some of the other things that might <laughs> yeah. drive you, dr- take you to Shanghai before this experiment to talk about it, to study extreme conditions? Um, it was part of a uh, global track program where uh, students from UH will go over to Tongji, get a master's degree from there with Chinese students doing the same sort of work, and then everybody returns to uh, Hawaii for their doctorate. And um, we all sort of had our research sort of areas of interest, and I had started on space architecture uh, to begin with, huh. um, looking at some of the ideas that maybe could be applied to, um, you know, Shanghai, something like that. Oh, I get it. So you were already in the uh, UH PhD program for architecture, and this was a part of that curriculum to perhaps go abroad and, and do the sort of the master's level degree at places like Shanghai. That sounds like a pretty fun thing. I mean, how long were you there? I was uh, living in Beijing for three months, Shanghai for about eight, and then a summer practicum in Singapore for another uh, three months. Mm-hmm. And and when you talk about extreme, you're, you're actually focusing in on extra uh, terrestrial types of environments? Yeah, uh, mostly uh, the moon or Mars space, but you always have to uh, sort of tie your work back to Earth so it can be uh, used by more than just a few people. Uh, so Antarctic base design, um, a lot of people don't realize that, say, drilling platforms mm-hmm. employ about 60,000 people across the world, and they all live way out in the ocean, mm-hmm. hardworking conditions, rough weather. So sort of making the place they live away from home feel more homely. So... so Though that in and of itself is a subject, I guess, in architecture. And then I, of course, I never went through architecture school, so I would think that, uh, you know, most of it is building buildings and, you know, sort of uh, uh, urban planning kind of things. But there is a whole section that talks about trying to live in, in places that are perhaps inhospitable. Oh, yeah. There's uh, many subspecialties, mm-hmm. and uh, being able to build for Antarctica or, um, say, orbital habitats is definitely a growing one. Mm-hmm. Now, Carmel, um, Again, you had mentioned uh, not necessarily, you know, volunteering to be the crew commander, but nonetheless, you served as such. And I think what something that I've been eager to get to is one of the real uh, objectives of this 12-month mission was to talk about crew cohesion, you know, team, working as teams, keeping your sanity, being able to uh, work uh, in close quarters and, and live in close quarters. Uh, so I wanted to start with you on that front in terms of both coming to terms with being isolated that way on Mauna Loa and also having to either assert or learn your way to the role of crew commander. What was that like? Yeah, I mean, I think we were, the idea about the whole BHP research for this project is to see essentially everything that can go wrong before it goes wrong. Mm. So is, are there major um, character personalities that lead people to, you know, just go nuts, or are there certain situations where people just can't take it any longer? Mm-hmm. And so finding that out right now is what we're trying to do. And if you can find that out, and then the goal of the next two missions, which is to select the ideal crew composition, um, take all the lessons we've learned from the last three missions and apply them towards an ideal crew composition for these next two missions. Now, uh, Tristan gave us a, a pretty good overview of the mix of this this latest mission and uh what were some of the things that you were going in, maybe assuming you would have to address in terms of the way the crew might interact, maybe from different backgrounds or different parts of the world? Or uh, what was the biggest surprise that something went better or worse than you might have anticipated? Well, I don't think we went in with too many assumptions of issues that would come up because mm-hmm. we didn't really know what was going to happen. And so we knew each other beforehand. We knew our personalities. We knew um 
you know, how we interacted already beforehand, but you don't really know until you're stuck with them in a confined environment for a year as to what is going to happen. So it was a lot of learning for all of us mm. and for, you know, the research as well to find out how, how we all interact together. And, yeah, it was a surprise, surprise enough for us as well as for the researchers, and that's what they're going to be processing and, and sending to NASA in the future. <laughs> So, so Carmel, you, um, you know, <clears throat> we've talked to Kim Binstead a number of times, and you know, it it uh, is often uh, it often popped into my mind just uh, how exactly does she bring all of you together before going to the habitat? I mean, is it is, is it like a like an orientation that you have for a week and you guys live together, or do you have some sort of like a networking opportunity to talk to each other, sort of in the in the you know regular normal world, and then how does it how does that get orchestrated to then transition into the habitat? Yeah, so we had a week long camping trip at a, for a Knowles course um, several weeks before we were selected for the mission, oh. where we got to meet everybody and get to know each other. We were on a camping trip, so we mm-hmm. you know got to be camping and have fun outdoors, but we were also working on leadership style and and activities like that. And so once we were selected, then we were able to email and talk with each other or start organizing things for the mission while we were, you know, in the real world. And then we had an entire week of pre-briefing that was geared towards the research that was going on, what we would be doing, how our weekly schedule would be like, and the things that were expected of us during the the mission. So it was a pretty intense week of Mm. of pre-briefing, but then you know, we got all the information we kind of learned as we went along the year anyways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're talking to Carmel Johnson and Tristan Bassingthwaite, both members of the recent long-term, year-long High Seas Mars simulation mission on the slopes of Mauna Loa. They are recently returned to Earth, recently returned to civilization. If you've got questions or comments, you can give us a call at 941-3689 or reach us on Twitter at ByteMarks or at Hawaii. Now, Tristan, you know, here you are, 8,200 feet above sea level, you know, 1,000 square foot dome six of you learning to live together uh it's hard to resist the reality tv comparisons and certainly the the potential for drama especially we're talking about crew interactions leadership team building and i have to say reading up on some of these experiences you had my favorite quote of anyone coming out of this dome and you said you know uh Things here, here we go. A person can be totally cool one minute and severely annoying the next. The little things people do that you'd never notice in real life can make you think about tripping them on the stairs here. <laughs> so I can totally imagine that. In fact, I can imagine that in any close quarters environment. But uh, can you elaborate a little? And we're not asking you to name yeah, names. Yeah, don't name I mean, names. But but tell, yeah, give us an example. Oh, it's just like um, we've only got so much space. So if people want to, uh, say, play music, there's no place they can really go to uh, do it. I mean, you can hear everything anywhere in the hab. So you have no right to really tell somebody to, you know, not practice their hobbies or try and improve themselves. So you just put on your headphones and deal with it. Um, at the same time, uh, Carmel and I were both training for a marathon while we were in there, which involved hours and hours of running on the treadmill. So I have no doubt that our constant stomping drove everybody else crazy as well. Um, Just you telling me that is making me crazy. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Seriously, we were incredibly loud. Like, it's an old treadmill. It's almost beaten to death, and uh, running on it sucks. Uh-huh, but uh-huh. Um, ultimately, uh, we're mostly chosen because we can sort of uh, deal with the stressors. Um, there is always that sort of analog to reality TV, but unlike the, say, contestants for those, <laughs> we're actually chosen because we do get along very well and tend to adapt to whatever situation we're in, try and find the humor in things. Mm-hmm. You're actually picked 
not to be boring, but to be um, adaptable. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> tolerant. You know, so Carmel, uh, when you are in this environment, and you know, it, it, your privacy is probably not something that is going to be um, uh, practiced. I guess uh, you know on a on a daily basis because you're you know you're so in close quarters with everybody. Uh, what is it that the researchers are looking for that would perhaps indicate what uh, quantitatively what you and your crew are going through? Well, we had all sorts of surveys that we would fill out every day and certain surveys we'd fill out at different times of the day. They were gauging our mood, how we were interacting, and mm-hmm. um, what we were feeling. And there was always a section to write down what was going on in your life and that's, you know what was causing it. And so, I mean, through emails, through all the different surveys we did, they really had a great idea of what was going on every single day, which, you know, you think that, oh, they can never know exactly what's going on. But it's incredible how much information is conveyed through the surveys and how they can pretty much, I mean, before we even tell them that something's going on, they have already asked, Mm. hey, we think that this is, you know, something's going on. You know, can you tell us more information about it? I'm like, Mm. yeah, it's funny you should ask because, you know. Were you also required to wear any sensors that you know yeah. was feeding feeding data into into a system? Yeah, we did. We had um, a badge that we were wearing that would tell our proximity to other people, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so if you were wearing the badge and you had your heart rate monitor on, it would also say, "Oh, you're this close to somebody. The volume is this loud," and you know, your heart rate is elevated, so we think that you might be in an argument right now. Mm. And, of course, the data is happening after the fact, so it's not like they're going to intervene and tell right, you, right. oh, we think you're in, a, in a, an argument right now, and then <laughs> the email comes in 20 minutes later. And, you know, it's not like that, but they are able to see the interactions later on and say, oh, yeah, so we saw these things leading up to it. You know, in the future, we will be able to prevent that by doing, you know, some kind of inter- intervention oh, beforehand. Interesting, because... Um, you know the the data feed would give them at least a, a close to real time indication of what you might be physiologically going through because uh, that would be a great indicator. The surveys are just what once a day, right? So it might be a, a delayed reaction by completing the survey. But with the data feed, I mean that's pretty near real time. Yeah, we had um, several surveys several times a day, so there was a, a bit of resolution to that data. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the real-time data coming off of our bodies saying, you know, this is how your heart rate's doing. We, of course, we take them off when we're exercising because they don't want to see that your heart rate's elevated for an hour, <laughs> but, you know, giving false data like that. But mm-hmm. um, other times, then, yeah, you can see who you're interacting with, what the data is going on, and um, then they can see what happened later on. So, Carmel, let me ask you a, a similar question. I mean, I'm not sure if you would consider yourself an extrovert or an introvert, but certainly when a, in a long-duration, uh, cohabitative environment like this, did you learn anything new about yourself in terms of, or did you see yourself changing in any way in terms of your natural interactions with other people, your need for a private space to be by yourself, anything like that? Yeah, I definitely didn't realize how much I value my personal space until this year. <laughs> and I, um, I mean, personal space and privacy in the sense of just quiet time because I definitely need quiet in order to focus anytime and if you don't have that then I was really unproductive at times when there's lots of noise going on and I'm guilty for contributing to that as well so figuring out how you manage your time and you manage your surroundings is really interesting and definitely something that everybody will have to learn how to do in the future. (laughs) 
Well, you know, I wanna I wanna um, continue that because I want maybe Tristan to describe the layout. Being an architect, I mean, he can sort of <laughs> give us a good picture, three D picture of what the habitat is like. Uh, and I, you know, I'm I'm guessing that you guys all had your own rooms, but maybe I'm wrong. Want to hold that thought? We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Carmel Johnston and Tristan Bathing Bathing Wait. About <laughs> about their twelve year, twelve month, twelve month mission, twelve years uh, on uh, on Mauna Loa in high seas. And of course, we'd love to hear from you as well. You can give us a call <laughs> at nine four one three six eight nine or reach us toll free from the neighbor islands at eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine. This is Bite Marks Cafe. You're listening to HPR now. Maybe you listened yesterday, and there's a good chance you'll listen tomorrow. You're already a regular listener. So consider becoming a sustaining member with a contribution of $15 a month. That's 50 cents a day for the programming you rely on and enjoy. Visit hawaiipublicradio.org and click on Donate to get started now. Next time on the New Yorker Radio Hour, writer and director Jill Soloway. She created the hit show Transparent, and she's thrown out the old rules for running a TV production. We all just kind of start to murmur, box, 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 <laughs> box, 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 and then we all kind of move into a circle. Sounds really culty, right? Whoever wants to gets up on the box, and they just speak for a minute. I'll get management tips from Jill Soloway next time on the New Yorker Radio Hour. Friday evening at 7, following left, right, and center. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting and Sacred Hearts Academy. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we're talking to Carmel Johnston and Tristan Bassingthwaite about what they learned from their 12-month mission on the high seas in the high seas habitat. And, of course, you can give us a call, find out about uh, what it's like to be in that 12-month uh, habitat. The number here is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Right before the break, we were talking about privacy and finding your own personal space and trying to get away from your crewmates. Now, uh, Tristan, I mean, tell me, what is it like to be actually physically in this habitat? Don't you have your own rooms? I mean, don't you have a place where you can go and close the door and, you know, not have to deal with anybody else? You do have your own rooms. Uh, they're just at the very top of the dome in a tiny sort of um, pizza cutter formation because it's the only way to make everything fit. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I could go up to my room, lock the door. There's enough room in there for like a tiny desk in my bed, but it literally is about the size of uh, Harry Potter's room under the staircase. <laughs> And uh, even then, there's no soundproofing, and so you can hear anybody jogging, listening to music, talking anywhere. And uh, really, just because we're all doing work at all hours of the day, you don't ever really get to relax as if you're alone, because at any moment, somebody could come up, knock, need you to help with an EVA, or do some geo work, or cook, or just ask you a random question. Mm-hmm. So, so, so going to your room and, and finding some, I guess, uh, quiet time... It's too small of a place. It's not, you know, soundproof. So it doesn't really lend itself well to being a place of silence. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, imagine just being in like the mall or something. You can close your eyes and you won't be able to see anybody, but you can still hear them. You can tell where they're (laughs) around. You're absolutely not alone. Like if I wanted to go into my room and close the door and just 
you know, sing for an hour or something like I could do that here on a car drive or something where I know people can't hear me. No way am I doing that in my place at the dome. So is this more like a tent then? I mean, how porous is are the walls between these spaces, the oh, yeah. small spaces? The actual dome itself is a dual fabric. So it's a really nice, um, like 150 mile an hour wind rated uh, tent dome. Mm-hmm. And then the interior walls are pretty much ply painted white with um, oh, some basic uh, construction. So it is very, very simple. How do you how much interaction? I know that part of the experiment is certainly to leave the dome. You need to get into an EVA suit. You need to uh, be fully encased and, and such. But when you're in the dome, do you feel any exposure to the environment? Can you hear wind? Do you do you or or is it fairly quiet apart from the noise you and your crewmates are making? Uh, there is the occasional wind. Uh, we're right on the edge of a uh, quarry, kind of tucked down in there, so. Most of the time, the uh, tent fabric is very still, and it seems enormously quiet. Um, if you get the rainstorms or something, we had those a uh, couple of hurricanes come near, then you can absolutely get plenty of weather. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm curious uh, about how you kept in touch. Now, one thing is true is to simulate being in deep space, there was a 20-minute, I believe, delay between something you would send via email and receive. Well, actually, they wouldn't receive it for 20 minutes, and then their response wouldn't come back to you for another 20 minutes. Did that truly impact how connected you felt with the world or was there enough for you to do that you that that was fine oh we did have a lot to do and i mean in most people's daily interactions i mean i'll send out an email and it's very easily going to be 20 minutes an hour sometimes a day before anybody writes you back anyways but we also had a complete uh, bar on say skype instant messaging phones don't work so all of the other things that you would use to you know talk immediately to anybody were completely unavailable. Well, what about news, for example? Do you know what Pokemon Go is? I found out about that like three weeks ago, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. No, this is a good... Uh, so I'm wondering, are you on any social media? Are you tweeting from, you know, the high seas? Yeah, a little bit. We uh, all got a sort of Twitter account before the mission began, so we could do outreach, uh, talk to schools, that sort of thing. But then it's set up into a Buffer account, which is this uh, mm-hmm. little online site where you can set the tweets to go out, you know, okay. an hour okay. a day. Day late or whatever, so none of it's actually real time. So you're not. I mean, are you able to sit at your, let's say, laptop or PC, and and uh, monitor social media, like let's say Facebook. Uh, timeline and just kind of see what's going on with your family and friends? Uh, or is that is that sort of a barred thing? Um, it's completely locked out. There's uh, oh. no way to do it at mm. all. Now, for past missions, I know each of the participants, they had a they had a skill or a talent or a thing that they were researching. We, we've spoken with artists who work on art and music while they were there, for example. Um, what does an architect or a design student do to further your own personal research mission in there, in addition to the work that the researchers of High Seas are doing? Uh, my big thing was doing a space architecture sort of experiential surveys with a space architect out of Vienna. And um, is once a month, and each sort of uh, survey would look at, say, how you uh, saw personal interactions in the HAB, what you liked or didn't like about the architecture of the HAB, the food, the working spaces, that sort of thing, to get a sort of broad stroke idea of how everybody felt during that year with every available sort of service in the habitat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, besides uh, your own work, what were the primary things that they had you assigned to do during the course of you know these these last twelve months, uh, my major thing was uh, EVA planning paperwork, uh, helping out with sort of the uh, hard work on the geotasks. 
Um, me not being a scientist, I was almost the uh, gopher guy. So if they <laughs> needed something done, I would do it. I could help out with the dishes, do chores, carry the giant backpack full of rocks. So when you say EVA, <laughs> are you talking about extra vehicular, vehicular activity? Yeah. So are you talking about outside of the dome itself? Oh, yeah. We can go outside, but uh, you need to send in a request to uh, ground support, mm-hmm. have them approve it, get it back, plan the whole thing with the crew, put on either the hazmat suits or the MXC suits, uh, decompress for five minutes, make sure everybody's radios are working, and then you can wander around as long as you've got a buddy so you don't fall down a hole or something. Now, what happens if you decided that I want to go on an EVA, but I want some privacy, and the most private place that I can go is outside. So I'm going to go outside. I'm going to kind of like walk around and sort of maybe fake doing, rock and think. doing some work or whatever, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to hang out here for like the next couple of hours. Now, it might be longer than the actual scheduled time. What would actually happen if you were to go beyond what is what is being documented. AWOL. Yeah, yeah. Basically mm. AWOL, you know, during the mission. I mean, obviously the researcher is going to find out and it would be considered <laughs> something like a, a breach of SIM. <laughs> so, I mean, you could do this on your own within SIM just by requesting it. I mean, if you right. say you'd like to go out and just wander around and explore a bit, I mean, you might have to wait uh, till the next day. But as long as you've got sort of a conscious check on how you're feeling and you're able to plan ahead mm-hmm, a little bit, mm-hmm. you can totally do that. I did more than once. Mm-hmm. Well, while we're hoping uh, we can reconnect with Carmel, but she is, again, traveling with her family, uh, I wanted to ask you, Tristan, you mentioned, you know, maybe if they need someone to carry the box, the backpack of rocks or do the dishes. One of the things that happens in any cohabitative environment, whether it's dorm, you know, with roommates like my daughter or, or, or in a house, sometimes people might become assigned certain roles or assumed to do certain things and it's actually resentful. Like, why am I always doing the dishes? Why Why is that person, you know, the maid of this group? Uh, is that something that is anticipated? Is that something that is discussed as part of crew cohesion conversation? Yeah, and is it even stereotypic, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we all had sort of our own chores that um, even near the beginning, we just agreed to do each week anyways, because it was almost muscle memory at that point. Mm-hmm. So uh, Carmel and I cleaned the bathrooms. Shay would do the uh, composting toilets. Uh, Christiane would vacuum the whole habitat. Um, Andre and Cyprian would clean the whole kitchen and all that jazz. But um, ultimately, it's not a very big deal at all. It takes like 20, 25 minutes if everybody just pitches in. But then there were people who would say um, have different habits just for the regular dishes. So the Europeans would often like fill up cups with water and coffee and just leave them everywhere. And I'd wander <laughs> around and gather them back up and wash them so that I could have a drink. Did that ever prompt conversations like, well, this is an interesting cultural difference? Oh, yeah, we definitely had that more than once. <laughs> um, but ultimately, like you can talk about it and people are either going to change or not. And when they don't, you're still stuck in the dome, so right. you might as well just uh, adapt. Yeah. So I, yeah. So this is a typical example of uh, what might be encountered if you had roommates. So you have a kitchen, you have a sink. There's dirty dishes, and sometimes you know you maybe you eat together or maybe you eat separately, but the dishes end up dirty in the sink. Does that happen on the habitat? And what do you do to resolve that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, sometimes you know who made it for sure, and you can just like <laughs> shout at them because you know they can hear you. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> That's true. Other times, yeah, exactly. Um, We'll just have a pot of hot water because there's always one going for tea or coffee. And it's just, eh, you sigh, you wash it anyways, and try not to let it get to you. You know, there's bigger things you got to worry about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I did ask uh, Carmel this, but I'll ask you. I mean, you seem very outgoing, very articulate, very easygoing, and happy to do other people's dishes. But still, was there something about this experience? Because 12 months is, to me, an almost imponderably long time, even though it's not as long as a mission would actually be in space. Was there something that surprised you about yourself? Like, 
I mean, that comment about wanting to trip someone going down the stairs. I'm not sure if that's something you would express perhaps before this mission, but maybe not. I mean, did you learn something new? Oh, I definitely learned how annoyed I could get with, you know, <laughs> microstimuli and the things people do where you just shine, like, really? So um, ultimately, even having that, knowing that uh, you can tolerate it, that you uh, find other sort of avenues to release the tension, you know, talking to friends, exercise is a big part of uh, life there, partially for the sanity, partially just to keep in shape. But um, yeah, I mean, I discovered that uh, sort of despite how annoying some people can be at times, (laughs) like patience is amazing if you can really foster it. Now, I'm curious, uh, Tristan, I mean, do you feel that the experience you had uh, has perhaps uh, given you a sense of what it might be to to perhaps live on the uh, International Space Station? Uh, potentially. Those guys definitely have a much more uh, realistic environment with, you know, zero gravity. You can look out the window and see the Earth going by. I mean, you know you're an astronaut. You took a rocket to get there. Um, mm-hmm. But they also have real-time communication. I mean, they can get on the phone anytime, call their family, call ground control, have a chat. Um, I think one of the rockets that went up in the last couple of months just brought them an espresso machine. Mm. So uh, in some ways, they actually had it a lot nicer than we did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, um, an important part, I mean, Bert rightfully asked about the orientation process, getting prepared for this mission. But even in science fiction, the reintegration process is also kind of tricky sometimes. I want to know, Tristan, if there was something that you found yourself missing dearly, something that you had to do as soon as you were able to leave this habitat. Um, and was there anything unexpected about, quote, unquote, coming back to Earth? Uh, the big thing I had to do was get to Teddy's for a Bacado burger. So I managed to pull that one off uh, fairly quickly. <laughs> you know, something fresh, avocados that are actually real because we only had powdered avocado in the hab. <laughs> um, as far as uh, sort of getting back, it's still kind of hard to tell. I mean, we did get out only a couple of weeks ago. Um, it went from being in the dome all day, every day to a ton of media, a ton of science debriefing, everybody traveling back to their families. Um, I came back to Honolulu and immediately started school. Mm. So honestly, there hasn't even been the time to sort of decompress to the point where I've been able to take a breath and sort of take stock of everything. And Carmel, um, how about for you? What did you miss the most? And how has it been like, in addition to flying to Seattle, how much? How has it been like returning to real life? Um, what did I miss most? I probably missed my friends and family the most. Um, I mean, I ate so many vegetables during the week the, the year that I wasn't really missing fresh vegetables or like vegetables in general. I miss fresh ones, of course. So I've mm-hmm. eaten my fill of fresh fruits and vegetables as much as I can. Um, yeah, I, I agree with Tristan was saying that we came out and we had so much media and so many research things that we were doing that it was only like yesterday, I think, that I finally got to actually be like, wow, okay, I actually get to take a break for me today and do something that I want to do. <laughs> and it's, it's nice, but it was definitely not a luxury in the last um, last couple of weeks and everything. So you're in Hawaii; it's just a you know rainbows and, and waterfalls and stuff. You're like, no, actually, we we were working the whole time, <laughs> so so uh, so it's nice to have a break. So Carmel, I mean, do you do you have a have any uh, let's say sense of how your life might have been changed? I mean, what what trajectory are you on now? Um, I'm on an unknown trajectory, and if anyone <laughs> wants to help me figure that one out, then I will appreciate their their guidance. Um, yeah, I think um, career-wise, I still am interested in science, and it's changing as to whether I want to be more Earth-based or Mars-based. Mm. Um, but I don't think my curiosity for life and nature has dwindled at all. It's definitely increased a bunch, and so 
trying to focus and figure out one thing I want to work on is going to be a challenge for sure. Are you are you uh, uh, in a graduate program? Uh, I mean, what's what's uh, you know next on your agenda? Are you still at uh, uh, Montana Montana State? Um, no, I graduated from Montana State about oh. three years ago, oh, okay. and then I was doing field work in different locations, and then I was working as a soil scientist before I came to the dome. And right now I'm looking at graduate programs and hoping that somebody will accept me, but also looking at different jobs and um, figure out how I want to contribute next. Well, Carmel, I would imagine having high seas on your resume might make that much more a much more interesting process. I hope so. I think that I hope that whoever is is my future employer will see that as something that's very unique and also can be a contribution to their their program or their um, department. So. Hopefully, it, it will only be to my benefit. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Tristan, I mean, you're you're pretty set in terms of what your trajectory is. I mean, you have to finish your PhD. How many more, let's say, years do you have for that? Uh, I should graduate next spring, actually. Next spring. Now, if you were, let's say, got your diploma in hand, did your dissertation, ready to go out into the real world, is that real world Mars? Or <laughs> where's that real world going to take you now? Because you've probably got your degree now in sort of this architecture for extreme environments. Yeah, my dream job would be to have uh, SpaceX call me up and say, we need a space architect to help us design our ships and Mars bases wow. and everything. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. move to Hawthorne and spend the next 20 years playing in space. That'd be the dream. Okay. Um, aside from that, there are a few firms around the world, uh, including one in Hawaii, that do uh, Antarctic architecture, base design, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so being able to do uh, my degree while on this planet would also just be amazing. Do you plan on, uh, with the time you spent with these six people in close quarters, is, is there an alumni Facebook group? Is there any plan to stay connected or reconnect at some point? It'd be really hard to do because, I mean, we're scattered not only across the United States, but I mean, we've got members uh, in Italy doing their PhD now, going back to uh, Scandinavia. Like, just everybody went everywhere. Mm-hmm. And with the time zone changes and then everybody's sort of at a different point of their education, professional life. I mean, it could happen, but it seems like a huge long shot. Well, Carmel and Tristan, we'll try to catch up with you then again on our own in maybe 10 years. Yeah, so Carmel, <laughs> where would somebody go to find out what's uh, happening with your, let's say, next adventure? With my next adventure? Um, I, I'm i really notoriously bad at blogging, so I would say don't go to my blog. That's <laughs> probably going down downstairs. Um, probably Facebook or um, email is probably the best. Uh, method because I email people back pretty quickly. Fantastic. Um, Sounds good. Yeah, or, I mean, get in touch with anybody that's on the project and then um, They'll put us I'll in respond touch. at some point. I mean, I hope to be in Antarctica doing field work there, but <laughs> we'll see if that works. <laughs> Tristan, where can people keep up with what you're going to be doing? Um, I've got my blog uh, that should be on the highseas.org website. There will be a link in there. And then I'm often putting just goofy pictures and random ideas on uh, the Twitter they made us set up. The Twitter. So. Yep, All right. we'll follow that. Of course, uh, Carmel Johnson and Tristan Bassingthwaite are both scientists on the latest High Seas mission. I want to thank you both for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you very much. And we thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll talk about the realities of growing a startup in Hawaii and the draw to go to the mainland. And, of course, if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. You can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And of course, we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band, well, a guy named John Sampson. And of course, the song goes out to Tristan. Here's Postdoc Blues. 
See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Don't delay your day show.